What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. Queen Elizabeth II is the longest reigning British monarch. In fact, she achieved that status in 2015. But this year is a little bit special. It is her 70th year on the throne, the first ever, of course, to reach that, the Platinum Jubilee. Now, for those of you who pay attention to such things, you might be a little bit confused about some of the dates here. She actually ascended to the throne when her father, George VI, died on 6 February 1952. So we've already passed the 70th anniversary about four months ago. You say, I thought June 2nd was a big date. It is. That was the official coronation. But here's where things get a little weird. In 1953, so technically this is the 69th anniversary. But the reason all the celebrations are beginning tomorrow and through the weekend is because we're entering the 70th year. But that's not actually the point of the story. The reason I bring all this up is because some people, as you would suspect, are not happy about the celebration. In this case, PETA. That's right. The people for the ethical treatment of animals are very, very unhappy about the celebration because part of the Platinum Jubilee is going to be the Royal Guards wearing their, you guessed it, iconic bearskin hats. And because the bearskin hats, you know, those big, poofy, black hats that the military guard at Buckingham Palace wears, come from the pelts of actual black bears, PETA's protesting. They say Britain has banned the harvesting of fur from animals for over 20 years, and therefore it's unconscionable to get black bear pelts from elsewhere outside of the country in order to make these hats. The Ministry of Defense has said that it has no plans to change the material from which the hats are made. PETA says, hey, we got somebody who can for free donate you fake or faux bearskin. There's no need to do it this way, especially at great government expense. That's also not really the story. The story isn't that the Queen is going to be entering her 70th year. The story isn't that PETA is protesting. The story is how PETA is protesting. And if you know anything about PETA, you have high expectations because for them to outdo themselves in a protest is pretty much an accomplishment. So in an effort to raise awareness, shock the conscience, and provoke a change, the British arm of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals have a protest at Marble Arch, which is kind of like a small Arc de Triomphe in London, and the way they're protesting? Oh yeah, they all got semi-naked, wearing skin-colored undergarments, stripped down to them, splattered themselves with red paint to represent blood, and laid down in the street on Union Jacks in order to protest the bear slaughter. Some of them are even wearing bear masks, uh, made out of plastic, okay? Certified bear-friendly, and holding signs that say things like, Stop the bear slaughter. Ministry of Defense go for free. Now, whatever you might think about their cause or the value of having bear pelts harvested during what is likely to be an overpopulation era, although there's some dispute about whether there was a cull involved or not, that's not really the point. The point is what protesters think will or won't be effective. I always question the motives here because do they imagine that somebody like me is sort of walking by or biking by, notices their protest, stops, sees naked bloody people on the Union Jack in the middle of the public square and thinks, you know what, I have been wrong about black bears and those hats do not justify this behavior. You've persuaded me. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody being persuaded by this other than being persuaded that the PETA people need better hobbies. 
But I also wonder, because it is Britain, what do they do after the protest? Do they go down to the pub and share an ale and reminisce about the good old times earlier that day when they were protesting the bear slaughter? Do they change clothes? Or, I mean, is this like ordinary attire? Do they show up at the pub still wearing their semi-naked, blood-spattered Union Jack attire? Or do they still wear a mask? I just have lots of questions. In any case, as you would expect, the Ministry of Defense is ignoring them and will continue to wear the bear hats even for the Jubilee celebration of the Queen. And now from the science says what file, a study published in the journal Psychological Science last month indicates that people who are very good at a thing don't necessarily give the best advice to other people in doing that thing, but they do tend to give more of it. Researchers from Harvard University and the University of Virginia took a thousand participants and had them play a game called Word Scramble. The first phase of the four-part study took a thousand participants and asked them to simply play the game and then to ask whether they think there'd be any link between how good someone is at the game and then how good they'd be at helping other people play it. And of course, most people said, people who are good at the game are going to be the best at helping other people play the game better. The expectation is that those who know how to do are also those who know how to teach. In the second part, they chose a small subset of people, about 78 of them, to be advisors to 2,000 other people who were tasked with playing the game. You know, some of the advisors were good, some of the advisors were average, you get the point there. And as you might expect, the guidance actually varied pretty widely depending on the advisor. At the end of this phase too, they found that giving guidance did tend to improve people's performance. Here's the weird part. It didn't matter who was giving you advice. Whether the player had been good or bad, the benefit to you was the same. It just was something, but it didn't matter how good they were. The simple fact of them giving advice is what made you do better. In the third part of the study, 300 people were giving guidance written by advisors in the previous part, the 78, but they were told not to actually implement it into gameplay, just to guess how effective the guidance would be. And of course, they were not told how good the performance was of the people giving them the advice. Interestingly, they wound up picking the advice given by the more successful players as being the better advice. Keep in mind that all the advice givers had the same impact, and it wasn't actually any better than the ordinary player's advice, but they perceived that advice to be better. Meaning that even though it didn't make them any better, they were able to identify the better players sort of indirectly because they could tell the difference between the kind of advice good players give and the kind of advice other players give. And then in the final part, they analyzed the advice that was picked as the good advice. And the only difference between the advice thought to be good and the other advice is there was more of it. The best performers gave more tips presumably feeling comfortable about their own expertise and wanting to help people and having more things to say about it. And to me, this is sort of an example of the athlete-coach paradox. We tend to think that the person who is the greatest athlete is going to turn out to be the greatest coach. That turns out not to be the case. Likewise, somebody who is a great coach might have never even been a great athlete. And so if you want to get outstanding coaching results, what you want to do is you want to look at which people are able to produce the best athletes as coaches. You know, there's obviously a lot of overlap between high-performing athletes and good coaches, but there is also just as clearly not a one-to-one relationship between them. But it does seem to reinforce the idea that you will tend to believe the advice of a good athlete, even though that advice may not actually be any better than anybody else's advice. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
And finally, to New South Wales, Australia, where we find our hero, Cliff Dez. Cliff Dez is a dog owner who went out into his garden one day to discover his dogs being harassed by a six-foot kangaroo. Worried about their livelihood, as he described it, that the kangaroo was trying to rip his little dogs out of the yard, he was about 30 feet away and started shooing, go away, go away. But the kangaroo just stood there and didn't want to do anything. As we see on the CCTV video, things escalated when the kangaroo started chasing Cliff back across the yard. The kangaroo chases Cliff around a fence. Cliff falls down under the pummeling of the kangaroo, gets back up, and is doing his best to fight, punch, kickbox, jujitsu, wrestle. I'm not quite sure how to describe his particular style of martial arts here. I wouldn't say he's a master of it, whatever style it is. But in the process, the kangaroo is nipping at him, clawing at him, kicking at him. And somehow or other, he manages to successfully take down the kangaroo. Sweep the leg pinning him on the ground, wrapping his legs around him, and not suffering any more scratches or bites in the process. One of the government websites says that kangaroos accustomed to getting food from humans can become aggressive, they lose their natural sense of what's right and wrong in situations, they can become agitated, especially if there is no food forthcoming. So it's his fault that he didn't feed the kangaroo, right? If you're thinking kangaroos are relatively harmless, like deer with an odd body shape, they have very powerful jaws, some of which are as strong as that of a grizzly bear, so do be careful. He's got huge, sharp, he can leap about, look at the bones! I will say, one thing that this video did not answer for me is, how did he transition out of the takedown? Did he manage to pull out a cell phone and call the authorities? Did he subdue the kangaroo with some kind of a chokehold? I just don't know these things, and maybe I don't want to know these things. It's a little bit more interesting to leave it to my imagination. That's it for The Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. Consider subscribing to the digital and print editions of Newsweek if you don't already, and leave me a five-star review, please. I appreciate it. My bosses like it, too. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek. Newsweek.